0: can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin reading shortly from Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. We're going to look at a few different texts today as we uh, look at the life of Jesus. Um, You might remember, hopefully you remember that we're in an Advent series and we have seen the promise of Jesus and we've looked at the birth of Jesus last week, the Gospel of Jesus, especially in his encounter with the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman there in Sychar. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the pleasure of God in Jesus. So, the pleasure of God in Jesus. I thought I'd begin, though, reading... A few words here, just a couple of sentences from a famous world historian. This is the oft-quoted Josephus um, writing in his history, Antiquity of the Jews, the known published date of 93 AD. So roughly 60 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Josephus himself was... Not a believer, not a Christian. Writing in 93 AD, uh, he has already witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And nevertheless writes this. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things, and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared." Now, there are various portions of that quote that secular historians would like to dismiss or discount. And they'll say, well certainly Josephus wrote something about this Jesus and Pilate, but we can't be sure. I don't see any scholarly reason to doubt Josephus if he wrote something about Jesus and Pilate It might well be this, and he did write something, but it goes to show that 2,000 years is a long time, and there are many today who publicly express skepticism that Jesus was ever even born, or existed, or was crucified. There is more evidence for the historicity of Jesus than any other historical figure who has ever lived. He's been written about by more historians, testified about by more people, worshipped, followed, loved, served by more than any other man who's ever been born. Today, as we talk about the pleasure of God in Christ, what we'll find is not merely the pleasure of God in terms of happiness, but I think we'll find the pleasure of a father in a son. And I think that's how we're meant to think of this. So let's read now of the baptism of Jesus in verse 13 of Matthew 3. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's as far as we'll go in Matthew 3. I know that the relationship between the Father, God, the first person of the Trinity, and God, the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, I know that the relationship is not something that I can fully understand. I don't think it should be embarrassing for a person to admit that. There are complexities about the Trinity that we acknowledge are true and yet are tough to understand. Three persons and one being for all of us who live in the dimensions of time and space and can fathom one person, one being at a time. It's interesting, though, that God has chosen the basic father-son relationship for a reason. The Trinity might be very complex for us, but there is something very simple and relatable about the relationship between a father and a son And you don't have to be a father or a son even to consider it or to think about it. There's a dynamic at play here, a relationship dynamic, as human beings that we can understand. No longer are we thinking about two persons of the same Godhead, but we are thinking about two persons in a relationship that we can, on some level, relate to. No uh, little boy or little girl wants to let their their dad down. No one wants to disappoint their father at a certain age. Um, you know, I have a son and I'm a dad. And my son is 11 now. So he's getting to the point where he's got his own opinion about things. And, uh, and he... Every once in a while, he'll throw uh, an argument back at Dad when, uh, when I tell him I didn't think he did something right there. He, he made the wrong decision. I'm sure I've got more of those days ahead than, than we've already experienced. But I can remember a time not very long ago when a six-, seven-year-old son would see that his dad was unhappy with him and it would, it would crush him. Um... Now I have a good relationship with my son. I think I had a good relationship with my dad. I can relate to that. But it's an earthly relationship and earthly relationships can be broken. It's not lost on me the power I have over my son when he thinks that he's let me down or I've disappointed him. And I'm usually pretty quick to try to put whatever he's disappointed me in in context Uh, So it doesn't jeopardize the relationship as a whole. But not every earthly relationship with a father and a son are like that. And these relationships can be broken. When God the Father is pleased with us, it it is a blessing to experience His pleasure. And it may not always be apparent in earthly treasure or good health or good finances, or never a concern, never a bother, never a problem, but when, when we as Christians are honoring God with our lives, are fighting sin, are serving Him with all our hearts, there is a satisfaction that comes with knowing, you know, this person may not be very happy with me, this person may not be very happy with me. This person may not be very happy with me. But God is is satisfied with what I'm doing right now. And I can take peace in that. This part of my life may not be going very well. Maybe there's sickness. Maybe there's trouble. Maybe there's death. But I have no reason to think that my Father is not pleased with me. And sometimes as a Christian... That's all you have. That's the truth of it. Sometimes that's it. And for a child of God, sometimes that's got to be enough. Now here is Jesus. Not much, not much to look at. Isaiah 53.2 prophesies of the Lord. For He grew up Before Him, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. That's the closest you're going to get to a physical depiction of Jesus Christ. So you can take down the painted picture from your wall if you want, or leave it. uh, But if you want to know what Jesus looked like he looked like a Galilean Jew and he had no great form or beauty that he would draw people to himself. This is the son of God in the flesh. And here he is from the country area of the the Gentile lands. You remember the prophecy I hope by now that we have revisited a couple of times, you know? The land of the Gentiles, you who dwell in darkness, have seen a great light. That's where he's from. If we were comparing this to an American context, he wasn't from New York City, or Washington DC, or Los Angeles, or Atlanta, or Chicago, or London, or Beijing. He was from the country. A little town of Nazareth. A town despised. He spoke, if we are to understand the dynamics properly, with an accent among His own people. His disciples were criticized for speaking a version of the language that wasn't as refined and proper as that which was practiced in Jerusalem, in Judea. He's not much to look at he doesn't have any, any wealth or fame. Jesus describes Himself and His possessions in Luke 9, 58 when He says, "...foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head." And He knows who He is, but when He gets down in the river to be baptized by John it is a precious few amount of people who would take more than a second glance at this man. And at his baptism, when John announces that this is the Messiah, I mean, this is, this is in Mark 1, this is in Luke 3, this is in John 1, as well as Matthew 3 here. The pleasure of God the Father is on full display. That He is pleased with His Son. There is a voice from heaven. The other Gospels emphasize this was heard. This was witnessed. John responds to it. John the Baptist. He responds, It was told to me that whom I saw the Spirit descending upon like a dove, that would be the Messiah. So here's this guy without a lot of possession, without any physical glory. Someone to be mocked. Someone to be ridiculed. Someone unimpressive. But then the voice from heaven opens and it is like (laughs) like an angelic event. I mean, I've never heard a voice from heaven. (laughs) I don't think you have either, honestly. Not to pass judgment on any of you, but I don't think you have. And what does the voice say? Two things. This is my beloved son. That's one. This is no ordinary man. (laughs) And two, in whom I am well pleased. Now, there is a part of me that could rest in peace if at you know, the end of my dad's life when it's time to bury him, when it's time to put him in the ground, if I can say, I did not let my dad down. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm just being honest with you. You may not have that relationship with your dad. I know that. But I have a good father. And there's a part of me who would just tick the box of a life well lived if I could get to that point and here, my dad is is satisfied with me. And I am blessed to have a dad who regularly tells me how proud of me he is. And I'm 38 years old and that still matters to me. This is the grand announcement that we see at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Now, I want to skip forward and look at a second point in his ministry, turn to Matthew 17. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. Now this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. This is at most months away from His crucifixion. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. Literally transformed before three disciples. Well, what did that? What did that look like? What does that mean? Well, it's described here. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. I believe that that is the biblical writer's best way of recounting what was seen and describing it as it appeared. Jesus was transformed so that in the flesh he appeared like a heavenly being. Um, He was in the flesh, but he was transformed as if flesh itself was merely a vessel of something deified, something more than that. And if you were writing, I mean, how would you describe that? How would you describe witnessing flesh and blood somehow miraculously transformed into a vessel of a heavenly being? Well, this is, I guess this is how you do it in the first century. You describe a face like the sun. Clothes as white as light. (laughs) And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So as Jesus is undergone this transformation, these three disciples see two people appear, and this was not commonplace. we're not meant to understand. This happened all the time. This was a singular event at the end of Jesus' Life and the disciples are in awe as they watch the Lord, Moses, and Elijah in conversation. (laughs) Verse 4 is kind of funny. And Peter answered. "Uh, I don't remember anyone asking Peter a question. Do you? It's like, have you ever known that guy who always had, like he always felt like it was his obligation to say something? You know, like, like maybe this Peter is just the time to sit and watch or listen, but somehow Peter sees this as, you know, uh, an invitation to the discussion and he must chime in and he answers. Foolishly, as it turns out. Lord, it is good for us to be here. (laughs) If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, there's a lot in that. First of all, as far as I know, Peter did not have the resources to make any tabernacles. Okay? I mean, he did not... Peter was a fisherman. I mean, we knew he had a house, he had a family, right? But he does not appear to be like of the kind of Herodian wealth, kingly wealth, to be able to confiscate land on a mountain and build tabernacles. Nevertheless, that is what he is suggesting. Essentially, let us build some monuments, which betrays why Peter is speaking up and what he thinks is happening. He thinks here, I presume, that this transfiguration is exactly what he had been waiting to see in Christ. God in man on the earth and now his kingdom would be ushered in to rule and reign. And as his kingdom is now being ushered in because Jesus is physically transformed. I mean, we're not chameleons. We don't go back and forth. When someone is physically transformed, some of you are like, well, I've been on weight loss programs and I go back and forth. But this is another thing entirely. This is like you don't flip the light switch on and off. He is not merely in human flesh anymore and Peter presumes this is this is the messianic visitation that I have been following Jesus three years to witness and behold think these are the same disciples who are still in even in the midst of three years of rejection expecting the Lord to reign in such a way that their parents are coming to Jesus and saying when you're in your kingdom can my child sit on one on your right side and one on your left Like they have a faith because of who Jesus is and what they have seen in Jesus and what they have heard from Jesus. They have in some ways an unshakable faith to this point that there is still the divine moment coming when God in the flesh will step out and rule and reign forever. And Peter, it seems, thinks it's right now. And who could fault him for thinking that? And if this is the beginning of the messianic revelation, having the resources to build a few tabernacles will not be such a big thing. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Bright Cloud, literally, cloud of bright light. A a cloud of light overshadowed them. Now, with a sense of the Old Testament, we might call to mind the Shekinah glory, the great cloud of God's glory that was present. In the Old Testament at various points. When the Spirit of God filled the tabernacle, the cloud. The cloud that was witnessed by the children of Israel that would lead them by day. A pillar of fire by night. This is a cloud that is not actually a cloud. This is something that I would hesitate out of my own ignorance to describe beyond what the text declares. But the presence of God is in the cloud. And that is evident by the voice which says out of it, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. That's what you do in the presence of God. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, the baptism of Jesus is at the beginning of His public ministry. The transfiguration is near the end. And let's understand, this is Jesus who has been rejected He's not been crucified yet, but He has been rejected by the people. He is not good enough for the people. He has not satisfied them. They're not pleased with much of what He's done, and most, if not all, of what He said the people are not pleased with this messiah this is the jesus of john 1 11 he came unto his own and his own received him not and god the father shows up in this moment just to make it clear jesus has not displeased him It is remarkable glory in contrast to the scene that is coming. Think of the scene that is coming. Here we see a face that shines like the sun. But compare that to a visage marred to borrow the language of Isaiah 52. A face marred by a beard that has been torn out or A face stained by blood streaks from gashes of thorns. A face swollen and bruised by the object of ridicule of his executioners. It's a remarkable contrast of the glory of God visible in the flesh to the lasting image that the world would have of this Christ. This is clothes shining with heavenly light compared to the naked brutality of the scourging and the crucifixion. The Jesus on this mountain is the radiant Son of God but the Jesus of Golgotha is the suffering Son of Man. One to show us God's glory and the other to show us His love. And again the Father speaks, this time in a cloud, a cloud that covers them in a shadow, but a bright cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, and you get the sense in that last phrase, hear Him, that it is God saying, you see Moses and Elijah, but this, this is no Moses. You know, this is no Elijah. Moses and Elijah were prophets. People were supposed to hear the prophets. People are supposed to listen to the prophets. But here, among the greatest prophets, God the Father shows up to say, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. You don't need to listen to Moses and Elijah. Li- hear Him. Listen to Him. Do you, do, you, do you listen to Jesus? Do you hear Jesus? I mean, this is serious stuff. This is our Creator giving us Emmanuel, God with us, His Son, and saying, you you better listen to Him. And what has He said? Well, the message from last week, the, the Gospel of Jesus, He has warned us about sin, he has warned us about hell. He has warned us about judgment. He has called us to repentance. He has told us which kingdom to pursue. He has told us where our treasures should lie. Peter, you don't need three tabernacles for three guys. You need to listen to Jesus. It's worth noting that Moses and Elijah were also rejected. But they were no king of kings or lord of lords. Finally, let's look at the third time we see God's pleasure. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we will begin reading in verse 63 and we will just tack a few verses on our way to Matthew 27, now we are at the end, at the crucifixion of Jesus. And we should pause, I think, for a moment to recognize what the true issue of the crucifixion is. Matthew 26.63, this is when Jesus is on trial by the Jews before He's taken to Pilate, before He appears before Herod. This is the rejection of His own people legally. And while he is under trial and being questioned, it says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So let's understand, as we go through these verses, what the issue is. What the crime is. The issue is not whether Jesus was a good teacher. It's not whether all of his words were true. It's not whether or not he had performed miracles. It's none of those things. The issue legally, eternally at hand. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, who had remained silent to this point, said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, this is a bold thing to say on trial. Jesus has no lawyers. He is not enjoying due process of the law. He's had no chance to appeal to the media or the greater population for support. This is a man in the lion's den, arrested in the middle of the night, tried for capital crime outside the jurisdiction of the law. And when he opens his mouth, it is to testify I am the Son of God. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a bold thing to say. That is not the words of a man who would meekly escape. That's not someone trying to talk their way out of a problem. That is bravery. I am what I am. In John 19, we see this encounter. You can turn there if you'd like. We're on our way to Matthew 27. If you want to stay in Matthew, you can. But in John 19, I just want to read to you verses 5 through 11. Then Jesus came out before the people. After His scourging, bleeding and brutalized, wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. This is the offense. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and went again into the praetorium, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Those are not the words of a man trying to escape. I admire this Lord. Now in Matthew 27, look at verse 40. Look at verse 43. These are the mockers of Jesus while He hangs on the cross. Here is their mocking of Him. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days... Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. What's the issue? Again in verse 43, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Don't tell me that you think Jesus was a good person. I don't care about that. That's not... That's never been the issue. And this is when we have the final word here from heaven. Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, the sixth hour in Jewish reckoning is noon, the midday. Now there is not darkness over the land in the middle of the day in the Middle East. This darkness was confirmed and cited by many historians, Christian and non-Christian. The people in the day, in the middle of it, passed it off as an eclipse initially because that's what darkness in the day was. The problem being it was an abnormally long eclipse. It was too long to be an eclipse. But this was a contradiction not recently discovered by scientific phenomena. They knew it was a problem then. The problem is spoken of in debates about what the darkness came from in ancient literature. This comes up in Tertullian, a Roman historian. Rufinus, a Greek historian. Phlegian, a Greek historian. This darkness was recorded because, of course, it would be. Tried to be rationed away as a natural occurring phenomena because what else might it be? And immediately called into conflict. Because the natural occurring phenomena. Would not have looked like this. And the debate. And the uncertainty ensued. Nevertheless. There was darkness over the land. At the Passover. In this year. As Jesus was on the cross. That is an unsettling thing. It has significance, I think, in light of what we have read about Jesus anyway. I mean, to my mind, Isaiah 9-2, where the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. That describes the coming of Jesus. And here those people have butchered that man. And there's a return to physical darkness. It's symbolic. It means something. The light came into the world and men rejected it because their deeds were evil. This is John 3:19. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. We are long past the mocking stage of the crucifixion. It's all fun and games until the sun goes out for three hours. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. That's not a mocking phrase. That's like legitimately something supernatural is happening here. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Another phenomenon recorded in ancient history is the earthquake. Graves were opened. Many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Nothing about that. That is just pure otherworldly. Now here it is, "...so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Twice the voice came, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased." Twice at Jesus' baptism, the voice came from heaven. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice came from a cloud. But in the final moments of Jesus' life, God would put the words in the mouths of the very men who had put him to the cross. From the mouths of his enemies would come the testimony, truly this man was the Son of God. But what about God's pleasure? The other times it had been, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now God does this miraculous thing to bring His captors, His executioners, to their knees, that they themselves would declare, truly this is the Son of God, but where is the in whom I am well pleased? Ah... How good is your Old Testament prophecy? Here is Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. For this final, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He puts the words in the mouth of his enemies and he experiences the pleasure in the mouth of his prophets. There was a a video that uh, that I saw. I should probably put a link up to it at some point. But of uh, modern-day Jewish people, obviously, if it's a video, modern-day Jewish people being confronted with Isaiah 52 and 53 because they had never read these passages before. And I, I just thought about how sad that that was at first because to make the video they go to Jerusalem this is and they don't this is not like american Jews they go to Jerusalem where today the israelites are gathered under the banner of Israel and they have their synagogues and their talmuds and their their own various degrees of orthodoxy and and all the video is is you know a jewish man visiting with them asking them if they know about the messiah and who the messiah is and what the messiah will do and they know very very little and then it asks you know, have you read from Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 53 because you know he asks you know have have you heard what do you think about Jesus and all oh, he was a good yeshua was a good prophet yeshua was a good man but you know yeshua died the people rejected him or should they have done that no they shouldn't have done that you know but but no he's not the messiah the messiah it will do other things and then it's just it's it's startling um he hands them their and it's 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 in you know their modern day hebrew he hands them uh, their own scriptures and he has them read from isaiah 52 in Isaiah 53, and they read it, and you know there are subtitles on the screen of the video because I don't, <laughs> I don't speak that language. But they're reading from their own Bibles, from the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before the life of Jesus. The great prophet Isaiah, often called the greatest prophet Isaiah, writing to them about their Messiah. They've never read these chapters. They've never heard them in synagogue. Now, read the verses to you just beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and I'll read the 12 verses of Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death. But he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel, saying, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The offering of Jesus Christ is the way by which all of us have an eternal inheritance as the offspring of God, the children of God. At the cross, Jesus Christ saw us as the prize. An offspring not born of God, but adopted into God's family. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He shall see the labor of His soul and be satisfied. Is that what God sees when He looks at your life? If you're a Christian, it is. For all of your sin, for all of your crime, for all of your challenge, for all of your wayward wandering... He is pleased to call you his own. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great... And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for them. That is powerful stuff. It's powerful in the video to watch Israelites read of their Messiah for the first time. But we know these things. We see these things. We proclaim these things. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? If so, you should hear Him. You should honor Him. You should live your life as one whom He died to redeem to transform. Your life is not your own. It has been bought with a price. So serve the Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, you would not be good if it pleased you to see your son tortured but the pleasure that you experience in watching your son Jesus Christ carry carry out a salvation mission even unto death the pride that a father must have in his son for doing such a thing for being such a one it is no wonder that you have highly exalted him and given Him a name that is above all names, that the name of Your Son Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, to the glory of You, His Father. As I think of that verse from Philippians 2, it's impressed upon me, the way You interject Yourself into it, God how your glory, the glory of the Father, is tied up in the accomplishment of your Son. And it is humbling and overpowering and a little intimidating, Father, to know that you have entrusted us with your glory and your honor on the earth and that we too have something to live up to. That you have called us to be transformed, to be like this Christ. And we are not In so many ways we are not. Give us the bravery and the courage to bring glory and honor to your name. To love you and serve you with all our hearts. To be children of whom our Father can be proud. Give us strength and power to do this thing. Remove from us a spirit of fear that would have us concerned about earthly things as if this were not all dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Remove from us ambition and covetousness as if there were anything in this world worth holding on to at the end of the day. And give us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind that we can bring honor to your name. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.